Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. We've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The theme, true righteousness, in contrast with false righteousness. Remember what Jesus has been talking about. That a right standing with God is more, more, more than just the simple observation of rules and regulations. God cares what's going on in your head. God cares about what's going on in your heart. The Lord has been describing the spiritual principles that are to govern his citizens who are living in his kingdom. And so the Lord has spoken about true righteousness in verses 1 through 16. And in verses 17 through 48, Jesus is going to explain the meaning of sin and the solution to sin and how to overcome sin. Remember, Jesus has spoken about anger in the heart in verses 21 through 26. Lust in the eyes in verses 27 through 30. Now he's going to focus on marriage and divorce in the kingdom in verses 31 and 32. Matthew's gospel is going to give a more detailed treatment of this subject in chapter 19 in verses 1 through 15. Most of us realize that marriage has played a fundamental role in the stability and security of society and civilization. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible teaches that God invented marriage. That it is God's institution for the comfort and the convenience of mankind. Marriage was at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. The Bible briefly gives four purposes for marriage. Number one, to continue the race. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the Lord told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Number two, for companionship, for friendship, for fellowship, for enjoyment, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And number three, to avoid sexual immorality, to avoid fornication. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And if that weren't enough reason, the Lord also tells us to illustrate or demonstrate the real relationship that Jesus Christ has to his church. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where earthly marriage becomes a type and a picture of Jesus' relationship to his church. You know, yesterday I did a wedding. And uh, the bride was beautiful. And the groom was terrified. No, not really. He, was, he, he had it pretty much together, all, all things being equal. 
But during the course of the service, I said, therefore a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman, and the two shall become one. Unity. A real unity based on trust and respect and and affection. And this is the kind of unity that is reflected in the real world in which we're supposed to live. And just like in our day, there were two broad views concerning the sanctity of marriage and the preservation of marriage. There were two broad views in Jesus' day. As hard as this may be for some of you to accept, the two views were a view that represented what the Bible had to say. That God cares about marriage and that marriage matters. And then there was the view that marriage was negotiable, fungible, That you could do away with it at any moment. Listen to this quotation from John H. Adam and Nancy Williamson Adam. I read it with dismay. Here's what the couple said, quote. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer a good one, can be the most successful thing that you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. John Stott writes, quote, Here is the secular mind in all of its shameless perversity. It celebrates failure as success, disintegration as growth, disaster as triumph. Divorce is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's a wicked thing. It's a horrible thing. The views, by the way, were summed up by two rabbis in the first century. Their names were Shammai and Hillel. The conservative or the strict view was held by the rabbi Shammai. And what they would do in this very verse, which Jesus quotes when he says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Both of the rabbis believed that they were basing their view on the scripture. The conservative view that was held by Shammai narrowly defines a particular word, uncleanness. And Shammai believed that uncleanness allowed for divorce, but he came to believe that the word meant adultery, and adultery only. Hillel said some uncleanness meant anything that destroyed the unity of the marriage, anything that threatened the marriage became reason for divorce. He argued that since marriage is supposed to be a union and it is supposed to have unity, that unity was critical for every marital state. And so he came to believe that there was a justification for the dissolution of marriage for anything that threatened unity in the marriage. Marriage and divorce and remarriage became so easy and so common that it threatened the very fabric of Jewish society. 
In that culture and in that society, all a man had to do at the time was request that the rabbi give the wife a bill of divorcement in the presence of two witnesses. And the divorce was immediate. And the divorce was final. And it was hard, it's hard, it's hard to overstate the tragic consequences of divorce. It affected everyone. Husbands, wives, children, parents, friends, employers, employees, society. It's spiritually devastating. It's emotionally draining. It's physically taxing. It's financially destructive. And by the way... Four out of every five divorces that take place in our culture and our society, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, the woman is not better off. She is worse off. The children are not better off. They are worse off. And you've heard it said that God hates divorce, but you may not have heard the reason. God hates divorce because he loves you. He loves you. And he cares about your marriage. He cares about marriage in general. And he cares about your marriage specifically. He hates divorce because he loves people. He hates divorce because he hates sin, which invariably takes place in any failed relationship, in any failed marriage. And God hates divorce because it violates his word. And again, as you're looking at this passage and you're thinking about what Jesus has said, some of you might be a little bit discouraged because you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm batting a thousand. What do you mean? Well, I've hated someone in my heart. And Jesus says, that's wrong. And I've lusted after someone with my eyes. And Jesus says, that's wrong. And I've participated in a failed relationship or in a failed marriage. By the way, do you realize that we live in a culture and a society right at this very moment, right at this very moment, if you were to take the sum and the substance of everything that this culture calls marriage, 27% of marriages in our culture is between one man and one woman who have been married for life. Only 27%. That means that the rest fit into some other category. You know what? If you've ever been angry for no good reason, if you've ever looked or longed with someone with lust, with the idea of consuming them, if you've had a failed marriage, you might be thinking, well, what about me? And what about this? And what about my circumstances? And here our failures are the most visible and the most dramatic You might be married and you want a way out. You might be divorced and you want to remarry. You might have participated in a failed marriage. And you might be asking the question, well, help me understand. Can a failed marriage keep me out of heaven? And let me be clear right from the start what I hope that I've repeated over and over and over again. People go to heaven because they have a right relationship with God in Christ. And people go to hell because they don't. 
Is it possible that you can experience anger in your heart and lust with your eyes and a failed marriage and go to heaven? And of course the answer is yes. People don't go to heaven because they stay married. I know some of you are thinking, it shouldn't be that way. I put up with this guy, I should get to go to heaven after all of this grief. It doesn't work that way. People who manage to stay married can find themselves in hell. And people who get a divorce can find themselves in heaven. So what are we supposed to do with this passage? How are we to look at this passage? And I'm going to invite you to try just for a moment to see things from God's perspective. Look again in verse 31. It says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Once again, Jesus cites the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. He is going to give the meaning of the law from God's perspective. He knew that he was living in a culture and a society that had distanced itself from God's plan and God's perspective. It reminds me of a story. There was a lady who had gone through four marriages. First, she married a millionaire. Then she married a film producer. Then she married a butler. Finally, she married a funeral director. And when she was asked the reason, why did you marry all of these men? Her reply was, well, I married the first guy for the money. And I married the second guy for the show. And the third guy to get ready. Well, you probably guessed why she married the last guy. Why do so many people have so many opinions about marriage? By the way, there are only four views that could possibly be true. And we're going to briefly look at all of them. The most liberal view allows for divorce and remarriage for any reason. And I need you to pause for just a moment because the liberal view of Divorce for any reason and remarriage for any reason has become the the cultural thing that we've adopted in our culture. And you might be surprised, but this was the view again in Jesus' day. We've had in place no-fault divorce for at least two generations. Since 1970, more than a million children a year are victims of no-false divorce laws. You don't have to have a reason to get a divorce. Your husband can divorce you and leave you for any reason. Your wife can divorce you and leave you for any reason. And because we live in a culture and a society that doesn't ask for a reason, more and more people aren't giving a reason. We live in a world that has turned the meaning of marriage on its head. What in the world is marriage? Dr. Ben Carson, famed Johns Hopkins neurologist, was recently put on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of extremists by simply saying that he believed marriage was a covenant between a man and a woman. I need to be on that list. Send them the tape. 
Thankfully, the law center has decided to remove the good doctor from the list. But imagine, imagine, imagine the world in which you live. You live in a world where if a person says, I believe that God invented marriage. I believe that God cares about marriage. I believe that marriage is something that God initiated and that God cares about and that God cares about you. You get put on a list. Let's briefly look at the four views. Number one, divorce and remarriage for any reason. Number two, divorce and remarriage for no reason. Number three, divorce for certain reasons, remarriage for no reason. And number four, divorce for certain reasons and remarriage for certain reasons. All of these views can't be correct. But if you believe in the authority of the Bible and if you believe that the Bible has answers that come from God and that God cares about marriage and he cares about your marriage then I would invite you to think carefully about what the Bible says remember earlier I touched on the fact that there were two rabbinic schools Hillel divorce for any reason no reason Shammai conservative Hillel liberal and popular but I want to point something out to you Both of them took their views from what they thought was the Bible. And it is. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In all fairness to Shammai and in all fairness to to Rabbi Hillel, both of them would have said, we think we are representing the word of God and the heart of God. But let's read it for ourselves. If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Where Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, He puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. After she's been defiled. For that is an abomination to the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land. Which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Unquote. This might sound really strange to all of you. But let me help you just think just for a moment. What it was like to be married prior to the giving of the law. And prior to Moses writing these things. In the ancient Middle East. A man could divorce his wife. By simply saying. I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. If he said it three times. In front of witnesses. You're divorced. Moses is going to at least provide a certificate of divorce for the woman's safety, for the woman's security, 
for the woman's protection. Rabbi Hillel interprets the word uncleanness, remember to mean anything unclean, anything displeasing to the husband. The term has a much broader sense than adultery. Hillel would argue it can't mean adultery. Why? Hillel would argue because the punishment for adultery was death by stoning. If you're dead, are you free to remarry? No, you're dead. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead. There are a lot of people who say, I don't believe in divorce, but I certainly believe in murder. Now, we laugh a little bit, but the truth is, Hillel may have been on to something, at least in this sense. Can uncleanness actually mean adultery if the punishment for adultery is death? So the rabbi focused on what might cause uncleanness. The rabbi said it disrupts unity in the marriage. It puts the marriage at risk. And it didn't take long for men to divorce their wife for almost any reason. If she failed to keep proper kosher, you're out of here. If she caused the man to lose his temper, you're out of here. If he found another woman more virtuous, in parentheses, read attractive, you're out of here. If she embarrassed him in front of other men, you're out of here. If she couldn't bear children, you're out of here. And only the husband could file for divorce. The woman couldn't divorce her husband. It was true in the Greek culture that certain women could divorce their husband. It is true in the Roman culture that certain women could divorce their culture, but not in the Jewish culture. And so, only the husband could sue for divorce. And like so many people today, like so many people today, the religious leaders read the Bible passage and they made it say what they wanted it to say rather than what it actually said. The focus on the passage is not whether divorce is permitted or even commanded. Remember, even the conservative version of Shammai, he came to think that unclean meant adultery and only adultery but you see his view went one step further the one step further was you must divorce your spouse if your spouse was guilty of sexual immorality or adultery you must divorce them and so The focus of the passage isn't whether or not divorce is permitted or commanded, but again, as one Bible teacher writes, quote, how, but rather how improper divorce leads to adultery, which results in defilement. Through Moses, God recognized and permitted divorce under certain circumstances when it was accompanied by a certificate. But he did not thereby condone or command divorce. God's permission for divorce was but another accommodation of his grace to human sin. Jesus will later say in Matthew 19, 18, it's because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus explains to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it hasn't been this way. And so the followers of Shammai opted for the narrow interpretation. The followers of Hillel opted for the expanded interpretation. But the literal meaning of the word uncleanness is interesting. In the original language, in the Hebrew language, it meant the nakedness of a thing. Alfred Edersheim in his amazing book, Sketches of Jewish Life, talks about this word and the Jewish customs, both in the ancient world and in the world of the first century. He notes the same thing, that it's the nakedness of a thing. Some Bible scholars think that this means indecent exposure. Others have included anything improper. Some thought it carried the idea of something that would cause a bad reputation, some kind of indecency, some indecent act that fell short of actual adultery. And Deuteronomy makes it clear that if a person divorced and then remarried under no circumstance, could the person return to the first spouse? And by the way, the word unclean, at least in this context, in this specific word, there were laws of kosher concerning clean and unclean meat. But this word unclean is a very unique word. It appears only one other time in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, where it says, And you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy that he may see No unclean thing, same word. I hope I don't have to explain the meaning of this passage to you. I hope any of you who have ever gone camping kind of understands what this means. No unclean means something indecent. Something gross, something that you should cover, something that you should hide. God's not giving an excuse for divorce. What God is doing is he's showing just how evil divorce really is. And giving a certificate simply allowed the woman to have some measure of social and cultural and legal protection. And so for the person who says, God doesn't care. No, he really does care. God doesn't care about marriage. Oh, he really does. God doesn't care about my marriage. No, he, he really does. God doesn't care about protecting women. You couldn't be more wrong. He cares. He cares about people who are put into abusive situations. He cares about people who are made to do unmentionable things, unthinkable things. What God provided was an act of mercy and grace. And then it was interpreted by some as a commandment that you had to divorce for sexual immorality. And the Lord would make it abundantly clear. No, you don't have to. You see, most people, after they hear this message, they're going to come up to me and they're going to say, what about this and what about that and what about this and what about that? And rarely do they come up to me and they say, 
I think I understand better than I've ever understood before how God feels about marriage and how he feels about divorce. Do you realize that most people, just like in their culture, would not remain unmarried? They would get married again because there was some sort of offer of protection. 75% of divorced people eventually remarry. 60% bring children into a new marriage. And now we're beginning to discover something. That in a culture and a society that allows for divorce under any reason and no reason at all, that guess what? Families are going to take on a whole new different way of looking at things. And so there's divorce and remarriage for no reason. Some people adopted that idea. They just simply said, look, we're not going to allow marriage or we're not going to allow divorce or remarriage for any reason. Some have argued that the Bible teaches no divorce. No remarriage at any time for any reason. The Bible certainly has a high view of marriage. The Bible certainly has a low view of divorce. But the Bible does not, I repeat, the Bible does not teach divorce and remarriage for no reason. You want to know one of the most powerful and compelling reasons to believe that that's true? It's because God got a divorce. Did you know that? God got a divorce. He talks about it in Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, God has been pleading with Judah. God has been pleading with Judah Judah, to please turn from their sin, to turn from the idols, to obey God, to walk with God, to honor God, to love God, to honor the commitment and the covenant that he made. And as a matter of fact, in in Jeremiah chapter 3, in verse 6, it says, The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backslide? Israel, that's the 10 northern tribes. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up on every high mountain under every green tree, and there she played the harlot. God is accusing Israel of sexual immorality, spiritual idolatry, refusal to honor the covenant. And then it says in verse 7, and I said, after she had done all these things, after her persistent, wicked, committed lifestyle of wickedness, perversion, and rebellion. Here's what the Lord said. Thank God I can get a divorce under grounds of sexual immorality. That's not what it says. He says, return to me. Return to me. After all of the wickedness, after all of the sinful, treacherous betrayal, the Lord says, come back to me, return to me, return to me. But then the text says, but she did not return. I know what you're thinking. You're God. Why didn't you just change their heart? Why didn't you just change their mind? Why didn't you just make them different? Why didn't you make them cooperate? Why didn't you make them faithful? It's the same thing that every wife prays and some husbands pray. Couldn't you just make him faithful? Couldn't you just make her faithful? Couldn't you, can't you change his way of thinking? Can't you give him a humble spirit? Can't you give him a pure heart? Can't you give peace in my relationship? Can't you do this? By the way, could God do that? 
God could do anything. It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. And even God, even God says in verse 8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went on and played the harlot also. The Lord's basically saying, Judah saw what happened when persistent rebellion and disobedience and unfaithfulness takes place. But she didn't care. Do you know what this means? It means that divorce isn't a sin. God got a divorce. Is God capable of sinning? Let me tell you something. Death and divorce have something in common. It's not a sin to die. But death is always the consequence of sin. Divorce isn't a sin. But it's always the consequence of sin. Imagine that it's FBI time and I have gathered all of my church together and we're going to go out and we're going to do a little crime scene investigation. And I call you all together and we go on the crime scene and there is a body laying on the floor and you see a knife sticking out of the body's chest. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, observe the body. And you do. And I say, what's your preliminary evaluation? What would you say is the cause of this person's death? What would you say? Looks like they died from a knife wound. That's right. Yeah, it's okay to state the obvious. There's a knife sticking out of the chest. And you just go, looks like they died from a knife wound. And you transport the body. We transport the body. We take the body to the medical examiner, to the coroner, and the coroner and the medical examiner begins an examination of the body and discovers that it has been flooded with cyanide. And we discover that the person was poisoned. And someone stuck a knife in the person's chest to make it look like they died under those circumstances. And a lot of failed relationships are exactly like that, aren't they? He left me, she left me, this happened, that. You see the knife sticking out of the body and you draw a conclusion. But we seldom ever know the real reason. But whatever the real reason is, we understand that divorce is painful. And it's always the result of sin. And for that reason, some people have argued there should be no divorce and there should be no remarriage for any reason. But that's not the Bible's position. The Bible allows for divorce, for sexual immorality. Someone has said, well, that's not the meaning here. The meaning here is that Jesus is allowing for divorce in the Jewish context, in the circumstances of a broken engagement, but I'm here to tell you that that can't be true. 
It can't be true because a broken betrothal isn't the context. The context is Deuteronomy chapter 24, where it's not dealing with broken engagements, it's dealing with broken marriages. The perfect illustration is Mary and Joseph. You'll remember in the Old Testament, the punishment was death for adultery. But Joseph was minded to put her away privately, to divorce her. Not because he hated her, but because he loved her. And not because he hated God, because the Bible says he was a righteous man. People listening to Jesus understood Jesus to mean marriage and divorce. And some people have taught that the exception clause here in verse 32 for sexual immorality allows for divorce among the Jews only and then among for a specific reason. The specific reason found in Leviticus 18 that if you happen to be married to a near relative, then you could in fact get a divorce, but that's not the meaning of the text. The text says sexual immorality. And people say, well, it's not repeated in Mark and it's not repeated in Luke. Let me ask you a question. How many times does God have to say that something is allowed or not allowed for it to be true? Only one time, that's right. Jesus, in Mark 10 and Luke 16, is correcting the religious leader's false view of God's law regarding adultery. And so there were those who believed that divorce for certain reasons and remarriage for no reason. And Jesus makes it clear that by divorcing a woman on grounds other than sexual immorality makes the innocent former wife commit adultery if she remarries and it's assumed that she will in fact remarry. And it is true. It is true that a person who seeks and obtains a divorce for other than biblical reasons is not free to remarry. The simple rule is this. If you do not have the right to divorce, you do not have the right to remarry. So my question is this. Are there people who, even though they don't have the right to divorce, will get divorced? Are there people who, even though they don't have the right to remarry, do remarry? By the way, Is hating a person inside of your heart the unforgivable sin? Thank God, no, or else you'd all be going to hell. (laughs) Is lusting after a person with your eye who isn't your husband or your wife the unforgivable sin? If that were true, only some of you would be going to hell. (laughs) But just like murder in your heart and lust in your eye, failure in a marriage isn't the unforgivable sin. Imagine you did make a horrible mistake. Imagine you sinfully divorced your husband or your wife. Imagine you sinfully divorced somebody else. Do you think that the right thing to do is to divorce your spouse? And say, hey, you know what? I made a big, huge mistake. I I didn't have the right to remarry. And so now I'm going to divorce this person. Have you ever heard the expression, two wrongs don't make a... Here's the biblical principle. The biblical principle is always, 
Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Stop sinning and start honoring God. The biblical principle is, well, what if I've made a horrible and a terrible mistake? The right answer is always honor God where you are. Serve God where you are. Love him and serve him in the circumstance where you are. In verse 31 and verse 32, when it says, but... But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. It is in the context of a sinful divorce. God's best has always been one man, one woman, till death separates them. And remember, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law and uphold the law. And that's exactly what Moses winds up, or that's what Jesus winds up doing with Moses' teaching. The religious teachers of Jesus' day thought that they were teaching God's word, but they were only managing to perpetuate and proliferate sin and invite judgment. Remember, some of the rabbis taught, look, in order to get a divorce, all you have to do is just make sure that the paperwork is in order. And Jesus is saying, you couldn't be more wrong. And by the way, the word for sexual immorality is pornea, and it refers to any kind of sexual relation outside of marriage, whether heterosexual or homosexual. It was a broad term that it could incorporate incest, it could incorporate molestation, it could incorporate bestiality. All of these were punishable by death. A lady after one service came up to me and said, well, what if I'm in an abusive situation? What if he's mentally, emotionally, verbally, physically abusing me? And I said, you know what? This happened to a lady many years ago that I was, that I was working with. And her husband was abusing her horribly. And he came home drunk one day. And she sewed his sheets together. She sewed the sheets together, completely enclosing him in the sheets. And then she took a baseball bat and almost beat him to death. Did they get a divorce? No, but he never bothered her ever again. Am I suggesting that you beat your husband with a baseball bat if he's abusing you? No, I ex- here's what I want you to do. Come and see me. If your husband's abusing you, come and see me. And husbands, if you're abusing your wife, I'll come and visit you in jail. And I'll pray with you in jail. And I'll tell Jesus loves you in jail. But if you physically abuse your wife, I'm going to make every effort to make sure you go to jail. You want to know why? Because God cares about your marriage. And I want you to be able to say, I care about my marriage. Have you experienced anger? It's forgivable. Have you experienced lust? Forgivable. A failed marriage? Forgivable. Divorced people shouldn't be viewed as failures and rejects and forever barred from grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. We're all sinners who've missed the mark. And it's interesting to me that many murderers are free to serve. But people who have a failed marriage live in a, in a kind of a world where they're not free to serve. By the way, was Moses a murderer? Yeah. 
Did he lead the children of Israel out of Egypt before the murder or after the murder? It was after the murder. Did David ever kill somebody wrongfully or have someone killed? God's grace is so great. You see, a lot of people are looking for reasons for their marriage to fail. And God is looking for reasons for your marriage to succeed. A lot of people are looking for an excuse to abandon the marriage. And by the way, if you look long enough and hard enough, you will find the excuse you're looking for. But God's looking for a reason for your marriage to succeed. You know, it's said in our culture and our society right now that one in three marriages end in divorce. But do you realize that the statistics are surprisingly low in the church of Jesus Christ? Did you know that if a couple got married in the church and simply attend church on a regular basis, the statistic plunges to one in 50 marriages fail? Do you realize that if you are a man and a woman married in the church and going to the church and then praying with each other every day and reading your Bible together every day, the divorce rate goes down to one in 1,005. That's the difference. That's the difference. That's the difference that Jesus makes in a marriage. The Bible, the Bible isn't looking for you to be miserable. The Bible is looking for you to cultivate humility, transparency, purity, and peace. Why is Jesus talking about this? Because he cares about your marriage. Why is Jesus talking about this? Because you live in a culture and a society that will help you wickedly and sinfully instead of honoring God to dishonor God. Why is Jesus talking about this? Because he wants you to care about your marriage the way that he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your love and we're so grateful for grace and we're so grateful for mercy. <laughs> grace for anger. Grace for lust. And grace for people who for whatever reason have made bad choices, difficult choices. Lord, we know that your best and your highest is that one person should be married to another person, one man for one woman forever. Lord, we know that we live in a broken world, in a fallen world, and sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. And yet, Lord, we thank you for grace and mercy and love. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we have this great, great opportunity, and that's to love you now. That's to serve you now. That's to honor you now. That's to glorify you now. Lord, it seems ridiculous to me that a person who's hated in their heart would ever use that as an excuse to kill somebody. 
or for a person who's lusted in their mind to use that as an excuse to commit adultery or a person who is living in a failed relationship to use that as an excuse to continue and perpetuate a lifestyle of sin and adultery. Lord, we pray that we could be the kind of men that our wives love and the kind of wives that grow our homes in grace, in trust, in respect, in affection. Lord, help us to see marriage the way you see it and to see divorce the way you see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.